The Fanboy, episode 106. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is episode 106 of the Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? It's 2020, y'all. I hope you had a great uh, New Year's celebration. I hope you've had a, a, a series of great celebrations these last few weeks as we've gotten through the holiday season. I know I've had a couple of very cool weeks. I know that uh, I finally finished that project I was talking to you about last time, which was restoring the full feed on this here podcast since I had lost the first half of the episodes that I had created. And now they're officially back up. They've been republished. They have their original dates and descriptions on them. And now the entire breadth of this here fanboy podcast exists so I'm ex- I'm very excited about that because it really was kind of a bummer to feel like half of my shows are gone forever. But yes, for those of you interested in going back, the archive is now officially complete. And, you know, aside from taking care of that and making sure that my kids had the best Christmas ever, um, I got to watch a bunch of cool stuff. And we got to have some cool family movie nights, and I got to go to a movie theater a few times in these last few weeks since we've spoken. So let's talk a little bit because it's been it's been pretty cool. Like first of all, I've always heard about those special screenings that that happen where they take like a classic film and then re-release it into theaters so that you can go experience the theatrical experience with this film again. I've always thought it'd be cool to do that with a movie I love, but I've never actually done it. But this time I did. My whole family did. See, it's kind of like a family tradition. We love Chevy Chase's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's like one of our favorite holiday movies. It's a staple here in the Robles house. And it was a, it was also a staple in my wife's family's house before she married me. You know, their, their, their maiden name is the Zerodny family. And the Zerodny family also loves the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation movie. So we all got together, me, my wife, my kids, my in-laws, and we went to go see National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation on the big screen as part of like a special, I think it was like 25th anniversary uh, re-release. And I got to tell you, it's really cool. I, I highly recommend it, not necessarily to see this movie, because I don't know if, you know how many of you love it as much as I do, but I definitely recommend seeing an old movie you love in the in its original form. You know, they're in a darkened theater with a big bucket of popcorn on your lap with the lights dimmed and the surround sound going and getting to have an entire audience go on this journey with you again. I swear, I discovered stuff about Christmas Vacation, or I should say I rediscovered stuff about Christmas Vacation that I had totally forgotten and I appreciated certain jokes way more now. And just overall, it, it, it's a very cool experience to go relive a favorite in theaters with a packed audience reliving that, th- that film again. So I highly recommend doing that because watching, watching Christmas Vacation was pretty dope. I also got to see The Rise of Skywalker, Star Wars Episode Nine, two different times. And that's going to be the first real kind of long-form discussion on this episode. So before I get to that, 
I also want to share that I saw Bumblebee, which was a big deal for me because I've been hearing about this movie a lot and I'm not a big Transformers person, mind you. I never watched the original cartoon. I was not a big fan of these Michael Bay movies. I saw the first one and then I kind of abandoned ship in the middle of it. And, you know, I'm just really not much of a Transformers person, never have been, and I don't assume I ever will be. But I wanted to see Bumblebee, and I have since it came out, because of the buzz around it, and namely because of the talent involved. Because, you see, Travis Knight directed Kubo and the Two Strings, which is a movie I took my daughter to see a bunch of years ago, and it kind of became like a special movie for us that we did on one of our daddy-daughter dates. And, you know, I loved that movie. I thought it was surprisingly profound and deep for a children's animated feature. And it reminded me of like that the best animated children's features have that way of speaking to the kids on one level, but speaking to their parents on another. And I thought Travis Knight really navigated that fine line masterfully with Kubo and the Two Strings. So I wanted to see how he did in live action, similar to how I was dying to see what Brad Bird did with live action when he made that jump and did Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol after being known for years as, you know, a Pixar director, being known for stuff like the Iron Giant and the Incredibles and all that sort of stuff. When he made that jump, I had to see. Uh, when Travis Knight went and made a live-action Transformers movie after having made Kubo and the Two Strings, I really had to see how he did with that transition. And also, you know, his name has come up for a lot of stuff. You know, I know that it looks like he just had to abandon right now Sony's Uncharted movie with Tom Holland, and that's kind of a bummer. But in general, ever since Bumblebee, Travis Knight's name has been on the radar for lots of projects, and I've even seen fellow fans talk about how they feel that Bumblebee shows he's got the chops to handle, handle a Superman movie one day. And of course, whenever I hear such claims, I have to go and investigate them myself. So I wanted to see Bumblebee for that reason. I also wanted to see Bumblebee because of Christina Hodson. Remember, Christina Hodson has been on a big hot streak ever since Bumblebee was in production because people loved what Bumblebee was going to be about and its tone and the way it balanced the action and the spectacle and the heart and the adventure. And from the buzz from Bumblebee, she eventually got the Birds of Prey gig. From the Birds of Prey gig, she got Batgirl. From Batgirl, which, you know, who knows if that movie ever happens, but Warner Brothers has been so taken with her that they went from Birds of Prey to Batgirl to now she's also writing Andy Muschietti's The Flash movie starring Ezra Miller. So I had to see Bumblebee to see, okay, you know, there's all this buzz about how great this movie was. I got to see what I feel about the director and about the writer, because even though I'm not a big Transformers person, these are people who are going to have a very big hand in crafting stories based around characters I care about for many years to come, it seems. So with all of that said, I watched Bumblebee with my family right here on the couch. We had a nice family movie night, I want to say five nights ago, and we thoroughly loved it. It took a non-believer like me and suddenly got me hoping that there's sequels to this. So that's that in and of itself is a pretty big deal because, again, I've never cared about any Transformers anything. I didn't even own the toys as a kid. It's just not a thing that's ever been on my radar. And by the end of Bumblebee, I found myself feeling like I really want to see the continued adventures of these characters.
Um, so that was a big win. But also, I got to say, I agree with those who say that Travis Knight could pull off a Superman movie. Because I see it now. I see that he's got that right balance between sentimentality and emotion and, and, and you know, uh, the more sort of emotional character beats that these movies need. But he also knows how to make the spectacle look really good. He knows how to honor the mythology of the property he's working with. He knows how to expand it a little bit and, and draw in new viewers while also staying true to the original fundamental tenets of the property. And that's something in general that I that I was thinking about throughout watching Bumblebee, which was, I wonder if one of the reasons it works so well and that so many Transformers fans who had become lapsed, who grew up on the 80s cartoon, suddenly you know, saw this and loved it so much. I wonder if part of that is because it, it, it brought it back to where it all began. It brought the whole series back to the 80s. And it had a very sort of 80s sort of vintage feel to it. And it even just, in, in the way it presented the characters, you know, the designs of these Transformers, they look much more like the 80s versions of these characters. The tone of the film was very, you know, the villains were kind of like campy, kind of over-the-top cartoon villain-esque characters. And the heroes, like Optimus Prime, got to be his usual you know, melodramatic, heroic, almost Shakespearean self with the grandiosity, with with, with, way, with the way that actor has always delivered his lines as Optimus Prime. You know, it had a sort of like campy, larger-than-life feel. It was set in the 80s. It had the 80s soundtrack. And it just got me thinking because I've always felt like, you know, I wonder when it, since we live in this age where we're always trying to update, adapt, and, and reinvigorate classic properties. And the, the effects can be so all over the map. You know, some things work amazingly, and then some things fall flat on their face. You know, I wonder if Bumblebee succeeds because it didn't stray too far from what this property first became popular as. You know, it, it didn't try to reinvent Transformers. It tried to go back to the roots of Transformers and then adapt outward from there. And I think that's important because sometimes I wonder too, like if some of these properties that we try to adapt, that we try to put fresh coats of paint on, maybe uh, we're thinking about it all wrong. You know, maybe these, these properties are meant to be snapshots of the eras from which they came from. You know, and, and it's, it's just, it's always been a fascinating idea to me that like sometimes we take these properties that, that were originally intended to appeal to like, let's say, you know, six and seven year old boys. And then we adapt it and adapt it and adapt it till eventually it's also appealing to, you know, those same boys who were six or seven are now 45 and trying to see these movies again and get those same thrills. And we're trying to take something that was a children's entertainment and turn it into something that's much more complex and mature and metaphysical and grown up. But then it kind of loses its identity, doesn't it? It, it, it can kind of take the property and strip it of what made it charming and appealing in the first place. You know, so to me, Bumblebee is kind of a miracle in that it goes back to basics, it goes back to the era and the themes and the designs and the feel of Transformers, 
that so that it can appeal to those original fans, but it does it in a way that brings in some new eyes. But it does it again by going back to its foundational pillars. And I think there's a lesson to be learned in that. But, you know, that's a topic we can discuss at a later date. But in general, I think we should all think about that from time to time. Where some of these properties that keep getting reinvigorated, you know, you have your Ninja Turtles and your Power Rangers. Uh, we just had Hellboy get relaunched and it fizzled. Um, we've had several attempts at getting the G.I. Joes going. We've had some, you know, uh, comic book adaptations that have just completely just not really worked and have not gathered people's, you know, did not spark people's imaginations and get them to want to come see it, even though they're based on something really popular. You know, and I wonder if the true secret that Hollywood needs to learn is that when you are trying to adapt and update a property that's been around for decades upon decades upon decades, it behooves you to try to stick to the original DNA of where that came from. What was it about these characters and this mythology that captured an entire generation's imagination at that time? If you could tap into that, then from there, you know, the, where you go from there, the, the, the possibilities can be infinite. But you have to start by honoring the original form of what this was. And um, this is all true. <laughs> but, um, you know, short of, of continuing down that tangent, which, again, I could do a whole episode on that, and I, I may someday soon. Uh, let's continue on some of the other cool stuff I've, I've watched since we last spoke, because it's important, and it all ties together. Uh, we also had a movie night where we saw Avatar. My kids have been trying to check out Avatar for a while, and my wife and I keep on, like, you know, pumping the brakes on that, because it's a three-hour freaking movie, and there's all, you know, you're going to need a very good attention span, and there's a lot of, like, interesting layers to the story, if you're willing to look at it, which that's going to be a running theme today. Interesting layers that some people don't seem to want to see, but are there if you're looking for them which we're going to talk about a lot when I get to Star Wars in a minute. But, you know, Avatar seemed like it might be a lot for them. So throughout these last two years, whenever they've brought it up because they've seen a commercial for it or we went to Disney World and they went on the ride or, you know, now we have Disney Plus and they keep on showing Avatar there on the home screen. You know, we finally decided, my wife and I, that at eight and five years old, our two kids are now ready to check this out. And the good news is, we were right. They loved the movie. You know, we knew they would love it. We just knew we had to give them time to finally, you know, discover it. And they ended up loving it. You know, they sat there for almost the entirety of those three hours without any kind of fussing. We didn't have to pause to deal with behavior issues. There was no, you know, running around and trying to play with toys in the middle of the movie that my five-year-old son likes to do. No, we just sat there for that whole time, eating some popcorn that I had made us, eating some candy, and visiting Pandora with our tour guide, James Cameron, weaving this very interesting story. And they loved it. They're dying for the sequels. And watching it, though, you know, it brought up a lot for me because I feel like one of the first times that I saw the internet sort of like invent a narrative and then convince itself that it's real and that it's a real problem uh, was with Avatar. 
Because even though Avatar came out in a time that was really kind of like before Twitter and all that other stuff had really taken such a hold of the pop culture, you know, um, state of mind. You know, before all that, you know, before it was so popular to just jump on your your social media app and shout into the you know into the void, into the echo chamber, what you felt about something. You know, Avatar had developed this reputation where you know people felt like it's okay to trash it because it has some similar themes and similar like similar plot elements to stuff we've already seen. And listen, it absolutely does. There's things in there that feel straight out of Pocahontas, that feel straight out of Fern Gully. They, yeah, they, but in, in general, though, the familiarity of the story is not really an issue. And I don't know why that's become this thing. Right? I feel like, you know, people like to try to trash James Cameron. People like to try and, you know, take the piss out of something that is clearly succeeding. You know, you always get the jaded... You know, people who are kind of like too cool for school and all oh, this thing, everyone loves this thing. Well, now I'm going to try to knock it down. And the people who try to knock down Avatar like to hang their hats on how familiar the plot feels. But the thing is, familiar plots have existed forever. There's only so many stories to tell. Lots of storytellers, lots of filmmakers have have stuck to classic tropes. There are classic things that have been around for thousands of years of storytelling, and these tropes exist for a reason because they help to guide the, the 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 listener on a story that they can easily follow, but that they could also relate to, and that and that they could see in their own real life experience how this story relates to what's really happening. It's more about finding the universal truths of the story rather than trying to come up with the most original plot we've ever seen. And before you you know, freak out and roll your eyes and go and, and, and say, Mario, are you really trying to say that originality doesn't matter? No, it's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it's always been about the journey. It's always been about the journey, not the destination when it comes to stories. Some of people's favorite movies if you look beneath the surface, they have a plot that you've seen a million times. You know, some of my favorite examples of films in these last few years that people are obsessed with, and yet they don't realize that there's really nothing all that new about the story. You know, think about John Wick. John Wick is your standard revenge flick with a guy who lost someone or something and then he picks up a gun and he comes out of retirement and he goes and takes down the bad guys. There's really nothing original at all about John Wick, but we get into it because we're into Keanu Reeves, we're into this into this interesting sort of darker sort of, you know, hitman world that 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 Chad Stahelski and uh, David Leitch have come up with there. And you know, we're hooked in even though it's familiar as all hell, we still get into John Wick. Even Deadpool. You know, Deadpool was a lot of people's favorite movie in 2016. It was, you know, it was a breath of fresh air for the comic book genre in the way in which it skewed conventions and broke the fourth wall and yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, when you actually look at Deadpool and you remove the speaking to the camera stuff, 
It's just a standard origin story. A guy gets into an unlikely situation, comes away with it with some all-out abilities. There's a love interest. There's the big villain he has to get revenge against. And then the big boss fight at the end. I mean, it's Deadpool could not be a more paint-by-numbers plot. But we still enjoy it. We still clamor for more. You know, and it was just announced, or not, I don't know if it was officially announced, but Ryan Reynolds has been going around saying that Marvel Studios is indeed about to get into, you know, start producing a Deadpool 3. So, you know, there's excitement around Deadpool, even though at the end of the day, the movie that started it all didn't bring anything all that groundbreaking to the, to, to, to the table plot-wise. Because again, it was about the journey. It was about these characters, and it was about just, you know, how we got through this story, not the fact that it's the same story that we've seen over and over again. And Avatar is the same thing. It's a classic story. It's a classic story. It's a metaphor for what happened when the United States, you know, when the British came and basically invaded North America and got rid of the natives to steal their land away from them. But it's also a metaphor for what continues to happen to this day. Anytime a developed country comes into an underdeveloped country and has to justify a way to kill the natives in order to take away the natural riches that live within the ground of that area, which happens in the Middle East all the time, which happens around the world all the time, you know, you end up with a story like this where you have the imperial government intruding on the natives trying to either get them off their land or kill them so they can get the natural resources. In real life, it tends to be oil. At times, it's been gold. In other places, it's diamonds. You know, this stuff happens every day. You can have blinders on to it if you'd like, but we live in a world where this is still the way of the world. So the Avatar story is timeless and universal in that way. So yes, you can decide, oh, this is just a knockoff of Fern Gully, or you can take a second to look at, well, what is Cameron trying to communicate? What is the message he's trying to tell here? An avatar is filled with wonderful poetic allegories about life, about love, about what it takes to actually coexist, and how you know we need to stand up against greed, and we need to protect nature. We need to protect life. We need to stop trying to put profits and dollar signs above life and that there's a way for there to be peace and love and harmony if we're not constantly trying to convince ourselves that the people in the woods are our enemy. So it's a great story and I'm so happy that my kids watched it and loved it because the morals of that story, I want that to be in their DNA as they grow up. I want them to grow up with a, an appreciation for nature. I want them to grow up thinking that war and murdering foreigners on, on, on their own soil is inherently wrong, that we have to understand different cultures, that we have to let live and let live. And granted, I'm raising them that way. My wife and I are raising them with those kinds of values. And getting to see movies like Avatar with them is a great way to continue to build on that. When the entertainment continues to try to, you know, nurture and add layers to what we're parenting them with at home, that's a good form of entertainment. And not to mention, it's just an entertaining movie as far as I'm concerned. In my opinion, 
you know, we loved it. We we're watching all the gunfights. We we're watching all the, the intrigue as Jake Sully and Neytiri are falling for each other. And again, these are classic tropes. You know, we've seen this many a time. It's not just Pocahontas. It's not just Fern Gully. There have been lots of movies and plays and books and, and tales of a guy who enters a situation with negative intentions. He's working with the bad guys or he's working for his own nefarious, selfish self-gain. And then while in the middle of that mission or that plot, he finds himself bonding with and falling in love with someone who he was there to harm. So in this case, it was Jake Sully and Neytiri, but you could see that story play out in lots of things. I mean, I even think about like, like Guys and Dolls, a classic Broadway play that on the surface couldn't be any more different from Avatar or Pocahontas. The same thing happens. Sky Masterson makes a bet that he can convince any old woman in the world to go with him to Havana the next day on a trip. And his friend thinks, you're nuts. There's no way you could pick anyone, but if you let me pick the girl, you've got a bet. And he picks Sarah Brown, who is this very uptight, conservative, you know, like church woman. And of course, the, the now the odds are stacked against Sky. Can he actually convince this girl to go with him to Havana? And initially, when he's trying to woo her, it's kind of a lie. He's pretending to like her because he thinks, you know, he, he's trying to win a bet. But what happens throughout the course of the story is he gets to know Sarah more and they fall in love with each other. And then what happens, it's the same thing that's happened in countless other Broadway musicals. And we talk about it, you know, in the musical theater world. So many shows follow that structure of boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. And Guys and Dolls does that. We're right as, as we're heading into, into the intermission, a conflict happens that pulls our two love interests apart. And then throughout the second act, the audience sits there and watch them, watches them find each other again as we build to that happy ending. Again, classic tropes have existed forever in all mediums. And when you strip every story down to its core plot points, there are universal truths. There are universal stories being told just in different variations. So Avatar was James Cameron taking certain classic tropes and using them to tell a story and share a message that he thinks is very, very important. And I respect that, and I happen to agree with his messaging. So that's why Avatar, to me, is awesome. I can't wait till the sequels come out. And I'm just so tired of watching the internet invent narratives and then convince itself that these narratives really matter. Because yes, Avatar is familiar, but that does not discount what it is. And I, you know, I honestly feel like the same thing is happening right now with Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Because I see a lot of narratives already starting to be created and some people really feel and believe what I'm about to share with you. But I think we need to take a, a little look under the hood because while on the surface, The Rise of Skywalker might seem like lazy or pandering or you know nostalgia baiting or whatever it is you wanna call it, while on the surface that definitely seems to be the case, if you actually take a second so take a look under the hood and see what's at the heart of a lot of the creative decisions that J.J. Abrams and Chris Terrio made for episode nine, you'll realize that 
This thing is way more impactful, powerful, and respectful of what this whole mythology has been building towards than anyone seems to want to you know, care to admit right now. And to understand what I mean by that, you know, all we have to do is go back to the beginning. Go back to the, the sort of model that Lucas was going for when he first came up with these stories. Yes, he was trying to base them on old, you know, serials and things like that. He was trying to capture that sort of, you know, that, uh, whatchamacallit, that Flash Gordon sort of vibe. But by and large, you know, he seems to have used Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces as his sort of guide. Because really, Luke's story is very much the hero's journey. It's, it's a classic mythological trope. And if you were to look, you know, if you, if you were to, you know, familiarize yourself with Joseph Campbell and the hero with a thousand faces, you would, you would see very clearly that Lucas did not reinvent the wheel. He did not come up with some unbelievable plot no one had ever seen before. What he did was he mined some well-known and well-established, you know, universal mythologies and he just, you know, put new characters to, to symbolize these timeless characters. And in the beginning, it was about Luke's journey, and he was the hero with a thousand faces. And for this one, it became Rey. And it's important to acknowledge that because the core idea of the hero with a thousand faces is this idea that there's not a million stories out there. There's really just one. And everyone exemplifies one core story. And we're all basically on the same journey, whether we realize it or not. And we all have our own Obi-Wans and Yodas in our lives. We have our own internal conflicts between the dark and the light that we have to face every day. We all have things in our family's history that we're either unsure or uncomfortable with. We all have all of this stuff that makes us Luke Skywalker, that make us the hero in these Star Wars stories. And Abrams really kind of went back to that. And this idea of, okay, if we have a hero with a thousand faces, you must also have an evil with a thousand faces. You know, because J.J. basically spun that whole idea on its head by saying, yes, Rey isn't just a hero, she's every hero. She's the stand-in for every hero, for every Jedi that came before her, okay? So in this case, she is the hero with a thousand faces. But if that's the case, we need someone to be every Sith. And that's not something that ever gets discussed all that much. But if, there's gonna, if we're gonna talk about a hero with a thousand faces, that means there must be a villain with a thousand faces. And when you look at the Skywalker saga, Palpatine has been there since the beginning. Since episode one, he's been trying to pull the galaxy apart and create weaknesses and vulnerabilities where he can then go and take power and use our fears against us, use our hatred against us, so that he and his ruling class can really take over the world. So if Rey is every Jedi, it makes sense to make Palpatine every Sith. Otherwise, you know, based on what Ryan Johnson had sort of left him at the end of episode eight, if he didn't bring back Palpatine or give us some other hooded evil figure, otherwise, you know, Abrams would be left having to make Ben Solo that every Sith, that ultimate Sith, because that seemed to be where Johnson was heading. Remember, you know, he had totally neutered General Hux 
So General Hux, who seemed like he could be a very viable villain in The Force Awakens, he kind of became almost like a like a just a comedic foil to Kylo Ren in episode eight. They sort of neutered him. He became a sort of like feckless, sort of un, you know, just like almost like just a comedic, sniveling rat character in episode eight. So we couldn't make Hux the main bad guy. So we basically, you know, Johnson was trying to set it up like Solo, uh, like Ben Solo, is now the supreme leader. There is no hooded other evil. He is the other evil in the world. So Abrams was left in a position where he either makes Ben the every Sith, the ultimate Sith, but that's not what he wanted to do with Ben. You know, he wanted Ben to struggle with his legacy and be almost consumed by the hate that's been preached to him, but to ultimately show that it's never too late to turn a new leaf. He wanted Ben's arc to be one of redemption. And I agree with him that that that, that is a more interesting path, despite the fact that it, it's a little similar to what happened with Anakin and he found his way to the light. The way Ben Solo's arc has gone through these three movies, it's been way more, to me, way more fascinating and way more dramatic to find someone who's just been constantly at war with himself and see if, can someone who's gone as dark as he's gone, can he still be brought back to the light? And that's what Abrams wants people to feel. He wants you, the viewer, to feel like there's never a no turning back. There's always a chance to fix this, to redeem things. And that's where he wanted to go. So he brought back Palpatine. But Palpatine, this time around, is the embodiment of an ancient lingering evil. And if you think about it, in real life, there's lots of ancient, lingering evil. Things that we think we're done with. Things that we think have been vanquished and killed off. Only to see them rear their heads again 50 years later, 60 years later. You know, look what's happening now. You know, there's been a rise in Nazism. And, and swastikas are now being, you know, people are putting swastikas on their lawns again. And, you know, didn't we think we were done with Nazis? when World War II ended? Didn't we think we were done with like white supremacy or racism or terrorism? Like, did, didn't we think, I mean, unfortunately, terrorism we've never really been free of. But a lot of this other stuff, you know, we probably, a lot of us felt like we were done with this. You know, we thought we were turning the page to a new, more open-minded, peaceful future. Or at least you'd think, you know, maybe if you were idealistic, you felt that a lot of the, the, the dark evils of the past had been killed off, only to see them reemerge in these last two years in ways that are truly alarming and truly upsetting to realize, wow, we're still up against this level of ignorance and hate? I thought we were better than this. And that's what kind of, you know, to me, that's what Palpatine embodies. He's that festering, lingering evil in the shadows that's just we cannot seem to be rid of. And that's why I love that line about, you know, I'm every voice you've heard in your head. You know, and they show that he, like, there's multiple Snokes in a, in a vat somewhere that he's been cloning. There have been, you know, he, he's been every evil voice because he is the villain with a thousand faces. 
So Palpatine, for all these years, he he symbolizes that puppeteer in the background that's been trying to guide the galaxy in a dark way into a, towards a dark place where he can ultimately divide, conquer, and take control. And I think that's a fascinating way to take the story. You know, it, on, on, yes, on the surface, it seems cheap to bring Palpatine back, but having Palpatine come back as being the villain of a thousand faces, I think is a brilliant way to handle it especially when in real life we have dealt with lots of evils that we thought were gone forever that are apparently still something we have to deal with, and that's what Palpatine is. So what we get here is a story of good versus evil. It's a story of grappling with your past and letting the sins of the father die so that you can become who you want to be. And it's a story about how wars aren't one with hate, they're one with love, they're one with hope, they're one with, when, when everyone joins forces and agrees on one common enemy, that's when wars are stopped. And that's why for those who feel like episode nine slaps episode eight in the face, I beg to differ. This is actually making Rose Tico's point. Remember, Rose has that line. It's a little on the nose, but she has that line about how, like, you know, we don't win by killing those we hate. We win by saving those we loved. Or saving those we love, present tense, I should say. And episode nine, ultimately, is the embodiment of that. You know, there's that great line when the, when the entire cavalry shows up and Richard E. Grant, you know, says, but they have no army. And the point becomes, they don't need an army. They don't need a military. They just need to come together and say, enough is enough. We need to unite against our common enemies and show them what we can do when we break all of the false boundaries and barriers that the ruling class creates to keep us divided. You know, because evil, ancient evil like Palpatine and the real life evils we face in today's society they thrive by pitting us against each other. They thrive by making us fight our peers instead of offering our fellow man a hand against our shared oppressors. And Palpatine, through his many vessels, whether he was Snoke, whether he was Darth Vader, whether he was, you know, all the different forms of his evil has always tried to do just that. He's tried to divide and conquer. He's tried to extinguish hope in order to create an opportunity for the final order to come and finish us off. You know, he's wanted the rebellion or the resistance to always feel like, you know, to borrow a term from Star Trek, to feel like resistance is futile. Because when we feel that way, then we just kind of give in. We give in to the dark whims of the puppeteers in the shadows. But what happened this time for episode nine, for this idealistic episode nine, which is the conclusion of this Skywalker story, in the end of this story, hope won. The cavalry arrived with Poe Dameron basically saying his last goodbyes and apologizing to his forces for unwittingly leading them into a suicide mission, people from around the galaxy showed up in full force to save the day and strike down the final order. I think that is a beautiful story, and it is a metaphor for how those of us who are losing hope in the current, you know, with the way things are currently going, with all of the bloodshed, with all of the 
polarizing bitterness in the world with the us versus them, the left versus right, all that sort of like us versus them mentality. This shows that the only way we actually get through this is by coming together against the actual common enemy and not being off on our own hating each other. And I dig the hell out of that message. Just like I love the way that he expanded on what, you know, what Ryan Johnson kind of brought into the cinematic mythology with The Last Jedi, you know, I love what he, how he built on by basically agreeing with The Last Jedi's assertions that the Force doesn't just belong to people named Skywalker, Kenobi, or Palpatine, but that it's a real spiritual force that can be tapped into by anyone. You know, in The Last Jedi, it was Broom Boy. In Rise of Skywalker, rather than suddenly add another character with mysterious force abilities or try to get us to know Broom Boy a lot better throughout the span of one movie, Abrams made Finn the example of a lay person with force abilities. You know, very gracefully, he grabbed the baton that Ryan Johnson handed him and he drove the point home that the force is with all of us. Any of us can feel it and hear it, but are we willing to answer the call? You know, there's lots of very clear dialogue in there where Finn is discussing why he left the First Order and when he's speaking to other people who have defected, and they talk about this feeling inside. And that, to me, is beautiful. That's the Force speaking to you. You know, to me, it's funny because... This is something I've been having an interesting time with in my own life, these last, I'd say, like eight months, with my thoughts on spirituality and religion evolving an awful lot in the last year or so. So, you know, episodes eight and nine going out of their way to say, no, the Force isn't just some silly bit of movie magic that lets you lift heavy objects or gives you deus ex machinas to get out of any situation. No, it's the loving energy that connects all things. It's the universal truth that you hear, see, and feel when you close your eyes and allow yourself to drop your guard and feel what the universe is trying to communicate to you. And I love that Abrams basically took that idea from The Last Jedi, and it's kind of been there throughout, but he made sure that episode nine ended in a way where the Force wasn't just some exclusive club. You didn't have to be part of some exclusive club to have access to this love energy, that it's actually in all of us, and even Finn feels it, and even the people he speaks to seem to feel it, but they, 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 they weren't sure it was real. This is a message of, guys, it is real. The force is real. And the, it, it's a feeling that really hit me when I rewatched The Last Jedi in preparation for The Rise of Skywalker. You know, because I haven't seen that movie in two years. I saw it twice when it came out, and then I just didn't revisit it. And I'm so glad I did, because now with where I'm at, spiritually speaking, a lot of what Rey goes through on Jakku, when Luke is trying to teach her what the force really is, really, you know, it, it hits home. That moment when she's sitting on the rock and he's trying to get her to close her eyes and just connect with the energy within her and to just literally let all the pretense and all the other, you know, everything else disappear and just, you know, tell me what you feel. Tell me what you see. And the imagery 
that Ryan Johnson uses when we're inside her head, where you see nature, you see life, you see death, you see darkness. I don't know about you guys, but when I try to relate it to myself, it really hits home. And I love that these last two Star Wars movies were basically about trying to tap into that inner strength you have and to try to wrestle with that darkness. Don't run from it. Yeah, because the force isn't some magical ability. It's your ability. To, it's your ability to just be present, to just be connected to where you are, who you are, and what you must do right now, which is amazingly simple. Yet so many people seem hesitant to do it. And in Ray's case, you know, she had to learn. She had to. It, it took almost dying for her to realize that she always had it in her. You know, earlier in the movie, we see her sort of meditating and using that mantra, be with me, be with me. She's trying desperately to connect with her ancestors without realizing they're there. They've been with her all along, you know, but she has that meditation mantra, be with me, which becomes very important in the film's climax. You know, there she is. She's on the verge of death facing the most deadly opponent she's ever faced in Palpatine. And suddenly, in her fading moments, she discovers that, as Yoda said in The Last Jedi, she already has everything she needs within her. The voices of all those other Jedi pop up and tell her that they all live in her now and that she can defeat this evil if she simply accepts that she's never actually been alone. That facing your fear head-on is the only way to overcome it, and that she's always had it in her to overcome her fears, like we all do. And while we all like to try to think that some hero is going to come and save us, the truth of the matter is it's up to you to be the change you want to see in the world. It's up to you to step up and say, I am every Jedi. I am every hero. Every experience I've had, every lesson my family has taught me lives within me now. And I am right now at this exact moment, exactly where I need to be with the tools and gifts needed to pull myself up to the next level and get to the next phase of a happy life. I'm right there. I just have to make the decision. I have to get out of my own way and I need to learn from all that's come before me so that I don't repeat those mistakes in the future. And, you know, that's what I got out of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And it's also, you know, it's it, it's the outlook I'm bringing with me now into 2020, into a new year, a new decade, a new chapter. So until next week, life is chaos, be kind, adios. Adios.